that you pray for me as I stand before you this morning. I direct your attention to the book of John chapter 8. John chapter 8. Look at the story of the woman who's caught in adultery. It says, Jesus, verse 1, went unto the Mount of Olives, and early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him, and he sat down and taught them. And the scribes and Pharisees brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said, or they say unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayest thou? This they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. But Jesus stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. So when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, He that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And again he stooped down and wrote on the ground. And they which heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, went out one by one, beginning at the eldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone, and the woman standing in the midst. When Jesus had lifted up himself and saw none but the woman, he said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? She said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. Go and sin no more. This morning I want to look at the thought of a fresh start through the grace of God. I guess it's been on my mind as we start a new year tomorrow that that is often a fresh start for people. People will, um, if you're like me, you'll put off getting on track until the next year. <laughs> it's a good excuse to eat a lot of Christmas cookies and a lot of uh, good food. Um, but it is, there's something, there's nothing magical about a new year, but there's something refreshing about having a break and a fresh start again. And Jesus gives this woman that in this portion of scripture. As we look at this, we'll see several things. We'll see the attitude that the Pharisees and the chief priests had, which we don't want to have. Um, that we do not want to be like them, and then we'll see the grace of God on display as we study this. You know, if you read commentaries or if you were to go into any seminary today in America, um, most modern translations like your NIV or ESV are going to have notations, even brackets. Some may even leave this portion of Scripture out because they will tell you that the more 
um, recently found, but older manuscripts or more what they would call your reliable manuscripts do not contain verses 53 of chapter 7 through verse 11 of chapter 8. And so that's led some people to believe that this is not even uh, truly divine or holy scripture. But it is very true that many of the ancient church fathers or the leaders in the church referred to this story. So it's sure that they had it. And Augustine, who lived in the four, early 400s, uh, an early church father, uh, kind of one of the, the uh, leading figure uh, that would lead into Calvin and Luther and the Reformation, um, he said that it was removed from many ancient manuscripts because the church leaders feared that it would uh, cause people to sin. It would cause people to um, encourage them in, in adultery or this immorality that we see this woman that was caught in. And so that may be a reason that many of the manuscripts that we have found or that, that, that uh, critics or, or textual critics or researchers have found over the last 100 or 200 years uh, don't contain that. That could explain why some of the older manuscripts, if they are older, do not contain that uh, because it was removed for fear that it would cause others to, to sin or lead a more rebellious life. Um, you know, something that we have to remember is just because something's older doesn't mean it's better. <laughs> and just because something's newer doesn't mean it's better, right? Um, we're, we're uh, we, you know, when you think about the preservation of the scriptures, and we believe that the scriptures have been preserved for us uh, through the power of God. Do y'all believe that's what we believe as a church, that we have the scriptures today? And, um, you know, when... <laughs> So that may be an option that, that, as Augustine says, that it was removed for fear that it would cause others to sin more. Um, but one thing I thought of, and I was so happy to see that in his um, expositional essay on the book of John that Brother Michael Goins, who's been here before, a man who I esteem very highly, he had the same thought. It could be that when people read this, it was just too much grace for people to handle. Y'all ever thought about that? It's just a little too much grace. People... You know, people are okay with a little grace usually. You know, they 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 most people will most people if they're honest they um uh, they may they may understand it. it's going to take a little grace to get me in good favor with God, but not too much grace. You know, they're okay with enough grace to save the the gray handed the gray uh, gray headed Sunday school teacher who's been in church all her life. She may need a little grace to get to heaven, right? But enough grace to save this adulterous woman who was just caught in the act. That's just a little too much grace. <laughs> but I believe in big grace. Do y'all? I believe in the kind of grace that has a people out of every nation, every kindred, every tribe, and every tongue surrounding the, the throne of God even today, casting their crowns at the feet of our Savior. Do y'all believe in that kind of grace? Because that's the only, the only kind of grace that's going to have a, a scene in heaven like that is big grace. And so it may be that this was just too much grace uh, for some to handle. But when I, when I read about the Lord and when I read about those that He has saved and the way that He has acted and, and His graciousness and mercy towards us, uh, to, to me, um, I think this, is, um, this just harmonizes perfectly with what Peter, you know, 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter calls Him the God of all grace. <laughs> and I believe this story harmonizes perfectly with the God of all grace. And I believe that it is Holy Scripture preserved uh, by the preserving power of God for us today. As we set the scene in John chapter 7, uh, Jesus has made His way to Jerusalem for the feast 
of tabernacles or booths or tents. It's one of the three feasts where the, the Jewish males were to present themselves in Jerusalem. And so he's made his way up. And you've got to remember that, that this, is, uh, this is a time when Jerusalem is crowded. It's, uh, it's a feast that's going on. It's, uh, you know, it's, uh, I, I don't remember the, the numbers, but just the, uh, you know, it's, it's almost like in Tuscaloosa. You know, it might be the, what, the, the, Tenth largest city, or, or Auburn, the tenth largest city, or whatever in Alabama. But on game day, <laughs> there's a lot of people there, right? Well, this is game week, and there's a lot of people in Jerusalem. And so Jesus uh, goes into the temple and he begins to teach uh, during this festival, this feast week, and 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 he's facing people. He's publicly facing people. There are people out to kill him. Okay. See, in John chapter five, he heals a man on the Sabbath day. And it says at that time, it, when, when he healed this man on the Sabbath day, it made the, it says the, the Jews in your Bible, but you think of the chief priests, the religious elite, those who um, were Pharisees, chief priests, those who were in positions of high power within the Jewish religion, it made them so mad that he would heal a man on the Sabbath day that they desired to kill him. And so as we look through this portion of scripture today, there'll be some hallmarks or some identifying marks of what I will call the religious elite. And those are the people that are lifted up with pride. Those are the people that put others down that want preeminence in the church. And number one, one of the first things you see is a hallmark of the religious elite is they will put rules over people. <laughs> you know, sometimes rules are, are good and it's good to have rules in place. But, uh, you know, sometimes you may have to bend a rule or given a rule to help somebody, right? And so the religious elite will put rules over people and they say, how dare you heal a man on the Sabbath day? Not, don't think about that this man was healed, but it was the Sabbath day. You can't do that. So we're going to kill them. We're going to kill him. But many people are believing on Jesus. It says in the 31st verse that many of the people, as he's teaching in the temple, believed on him and said, when Christ comes, you know, when this Messiah is coming, when the chosen one is coming, will he do more miracles than, than these, which this man has done? And the Pharisees, here's the religious elite. The Pharisees heard that the people murmured such things concerning him or concerning Jesus. And the Pharisees and the chief priests sent officers to take him or to arrest him. So they, 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 here's one thing that the Pharisees and the chief priests and the religious elite, and we have them today. Uh, in, in our day, the church has had to deal with people who want the preeminence from the time that the church started, and it will deal with that until the time the church ends. And, and we need to check ourselves to make sure we're not becoming one of those people who wants to have the preeminence in the church because it's Christ's church. You know, God goes out of his way to remind Paul and Peter that this is Christ's church that, that you are leading. Well, it's, it's Christ's church, but the Pharisees and the religious elite or the chief priest, they wanted the preeminence. So they sent people out to arrest Jesus. And I love what it says in verse 37, that in the last day of this feast, in the great day of the feast, we don't see that our savior was scared at all of, of these men who were sending to arrest him, to kill him, to imprison him, whatever they had in mind. He's not scared at all. Cause it says in the last day, in the great day of the feast, Jesus stood up and cried. <laughs> He, he's not cowering down in fear, is he? He's drawing more attention to himself because Jesus is the manliest man that's ever walked the face of the earth. If you want to see a picture of manhood, it's Jesus Christ. And he cries and he says, if any man thirst, let him come unto me and drink. 
He that believes on me, as the scripture has said, out of his belly shall flow rivers of living water. And, he's, and, and, and that message is still true today for those that are discontent with their lives. The, 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 the key to finding contentment is coming to Jesus for your contentment. And he says, if you're thirsty, come to me. And he makes us a scene of this. Not that he's doing this on purpose to make a scene, but he is calling out to his children. If you're thirsting for something that you're not getting through these Pharisees and through these religious leaders, I'm here to satisfy you. If you're thirsty, come to me and drink. In verse 43, it says there was a division among the people because of him. Jesus begins to teach and and he divided the people. And Jesus Christ is the great divider of all humanity, is he not? Of all religion, of all churches, of all people. The question is, what are you going to do with Jesus? And he's divided people throughout history. He brings some together. He divides others. And there's a division among these Jewish people. Is this the Christ? And, and the chief priests and the Pharisees are mad. And they call for the officers that they've sent. And they, they in verse 45 says, Then came the officers and the chief priests and Pharisees, and they said unto him, Why have you not brought him? Why have you not arrested him? Why is he not here? And the officers that were sent to arrest him say, listen, never man spake like this man. <laughs> Isn't it amazing that they send out the officers to arrest Christ, the officers hear Christ, and they say, I'm not touching him. Something's different about this man. Something's different about Jesus of Nazareth. And, and then answer the Pharisees and say, are ye also deceived? You see how the religious elite can say, it couldn't be any other way than the way I see it. Are you deceived? And listen to their superiority, their pride. Have any of the rulers or the Pharisees believed on him? Y'all see that? They're saying, we are in charge and, 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 and we as the religious elite, we hold the keys to what can be believed. <laughs> Not the common people. They, listen to what they say. But this people knoweth not the law. This people who knoweth not the law are cursed. <laughs> and isn't it funny that Jesus came to the people that the Pharisees said are cursed? When, when Jesus would uh, draw his disciples who would be the, you know, the, one of the foundational layers of the church after Jesus Christ. It's built on Christ and the apostles and the prophets are a foundational level of the church. He didn't call the Pharisees or the chief priests. He called the fishermen. And he called a tax collector and he called a zealot. <laughs> See, Jesus does things differently than the world sees things. I think it's funny that Nicodemus, who did believe on Jesus, I think he was just a little too scared to confess it. He stands up and gives a weak, kind of a weak um, defense for Jesus. And, and that's that day. And it says in verse 53 that every man went unto his own house. And so we get to verse 8. And it says, and Jesus went into the Mount of Olives. So they've departed from the temple that day. A lot going on that day. And Jesus goes about a mile away from Jerusalem to the Mount of Olives, probably to rest. And he drew away from the crowds. There was a lot of people seeking him. And, and it is true that there's a lot of pressures in public ministry. And he went to do what others who are in public ministry should do, to go rest, to pray, to spend time with God and to recover because another thing about public ministry is it never ends. And you'll see in verse two, it says early in the morning, he was back in the temple. 
So he, he rests, and in verse 2 it says, And early in the morning he came again into the temple, and all the people came unto him and sat down and taught him. So Jesus, uh, once again, not scared. Jesus, with people seeking him, trying to catch him, trying to kill him, trying to arrest him, he doesn't say, let's all meet over here in secret. He comes right back to the temple and teaches again. I love the um, I love how there's no cowardice in our Lord. <laughs> He's strong, right? Because I find there's a lot of cowardice in me from time to time, and I rest on the one who was stronger than I am. And, and so Jesus, but listen, he'll also make you strong because if you read in Acts chapter 5, uh, some of his disciples after he's departed are arrested and they're told not to go back into the temple, but the Lord miraculously rescues them. And in verse 21, I think it is of Acts chapter 5, it says early in the morning, they were back in the temple teaching. <laughs> so the strength that, that they drew from Jesus is the same kind of strength that we can draw from Jesus today so that we are living our life being like Jesus. That's what they were doing in Acts chapter 5. They're told not to come back in the temple. They're seeking them. And where do we find Peter and the other disciples? They're back early in the morning, back in the temple teaching. So the, the point there is that if we follow Jesus and look to Jesus, we can draw. It wasn't Peter's strength or John's strength that, that, that got them back early in the morning to get back in the temple. It was the strength that Christ gave them to go do that. And so Christ is in the temple and all the people are coming to him and they're sitting down and he's teaching them. And it has to be driving the scribes and the Pharisees and the chief priests crazy because they want the attention. <laughs> this is my show. <laughs> Who is this? This pauper of a preacher. He doesn't even have a home. And yet people are coming to him. And so the scribes and the Pharisees, it says in verse three, brought unto him a woman taken in adultery. And when they had set her in the midst, they said unto him, Master, this woman was taken in adultery in the very act. And so what a scene that had to be as Jesus is teaching. You have these Pharisees and these scribes and these, these, these people who were, um, you know, they, they, had, they had popularity in, in, in Jerusalem. They were, they were big men on campus, right? And they're dragging this poor woman in, in the midst of the crowd, who has just been caught in this act of adultery and they bring her in and, and, and we see more hallmarks, I think, of, of religious elitism or Phariseeism. And remember, inside of us, every one of us has, the, has the, uh, some, the, the capacity and sometimes the desire to be a Pharisee, to look down on other people. And so uh, one of the things here is that we see that the Pharisees of the religious elite, they will use people to get their way. See, people to the religious elite, other people are just a, a means by which they can get their way. They look at people maybe as uh, projects or a means to an end and not people that they can help, but people that can help them, right? And so they will use them and abuse them until they are no longer good to them, and then they'll throw them away. If you find somebody be used and abused, the person who is doing that, if it's in the church, is a religious elite and, and we should have nothing to do with them. But the other thing that you see among people who get this idea, they're lifted up with pride, they're very pharisaical, is they, they, they publicly humiliate this woman. And, and now this portion of scripture has nothing to do with church discipline. That's not, it, it, to use it as, as, a, as any kind of uh, text for church discipline would be to misuse this text. It doesn't deal with that. But there are things we can learn about church discipline from this text. 
Um, I believe uh, that it can it can apply because you know there are times within the church. Let's talk about this for just a second. The the Bible talks about church discipline. It talks about bringing things to the church, and it, and it talks about that you can act, you can do things, you can live your life in such a way that you bring public shame upon the the congregation of Christ that they have to withdraw from you. That that's happened in the past, and it, and it may happen in the future, and and. What, what church discipline should never be is it should, here's, here's what I'm going to say, it should, church discipline, if it has to happen, it should never resemble what has taken place in John chapter 8 right here. Um, I, I believe personally that in the past and maybe even today and for far too long, people have, have used church discipline as a way to to shame others. It's really been used as a, as, a, as a tool for retribution and public shame when it was never meant for that. It was church discipline. When, 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 when Christ set up His church and He gave us discipline in the church, it was, it was never meant to be used for retrib retribution. It was always meant to be used for recovery. The point is to recover the person back to the church. And so... Anytime that it's been used to shame someone, then you know that that church has, has, has developed a pharisaical attitude that I'm better than them. And, and that's what these Pharisees, that's the kind of attitude they had. And they're using this lady and they're shaming this lady and they bring her before Jesus and before the crowd and they say in verse 5, Now Moses in the law commanded us that such should be stoned. But what sayeth thou? They asked Jesus. They said, Moses said that we should stone this lady. But what do you say? And this they said, tempting him that they might have to accuse him. Now listen, what, what that means is they had, no, they, they, they had no concern for real justice or truth. They wanted to catch Jesus in something. They're going to put him in this dilemma. Is he going to side with Moses? Or is he going to say, and if he sides with Moses, yeah, we can stone him, and then the Romans are going to be mad because he's acting as a judge in their jurisdiction, right? Uh, but if he says, no, she's free, then he's going against Moses, and we can condemn him to the, Pharisees, to the other Pharisees and to the religious teachers. What's he going to do? And I love what Jesus does. It, it says he stooped down and with his finger wrote on the ground as though he heard them not. Um, what a reaction by our Savior, isn't it? He just kind of ignores them. And, you know, you read some of the interactions between Jesus and these people. He didn't pull some punches, you know. He'd say, you're of your father, the devil. And don't you know that made him mad? But here, he ignores them. And that probably made him even more mad. <laughs> And he, and, he, and he stoops down and he begins to teach them. And, and once again, a hallmark of the religious elite of the Pharisees, they were twisting the word of God for their benefit. Because if you go read in Leviticus, it wasn't just the adulterous woman that should have been stoned. They should have had the man there too that was caught in the very act. 
and this is extra biblical for sure, but I have a, I have a feeling that maybe they were going to meet one of their buddies and that's where they found the woman. <laughs> and sometimes the religious elite will take care of their own, but not others. <laughs> but where was the man? We don't know. So it says in verse 7, so when they continued asking him, he lifted up himself and said unto them, he that is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. And what Jesus knew about these people is that they were self-righteous and they either failed or they had forgotten to recognize their very own sin. And isn't that a danger that we all face? So we become self-righteous. We forget what we've done. We forget where we've been. And we look down on others where they are. And, and sometimes we've even been in the same place they were. But now we're out of that by God's grace. And, and we're going to take the grace that God's given us and look down on them judgmentally. Um, and you know, adultery and other similar immoralities in, in, in this time just as they are in our time today, were very common. <laughs> even, believe it or not, even among the religious elite who thought they were better than everybody else. And probably the difference between the Pharisees and the scribes here and this adulterous woman is the Pharisees and scribes were better at hiding their sin than the adulterous woman was. And Jesus knew that. And Jesus answers them, and, and he says, he who is without sin among you, let him first cast a stone at her. Um, the perfect answer. John Gill wrote this in his commentary on this verse. He says, by this answer, our Lord, by this answer of our Lord, he at once wrought himself out of the dilemma. Remember, he'd been placed in a dilemma. What's he going to say? Uh, they thought to distress him with this dilemma, and he has got himself out of it. For, for though he passed no sentence upon the woman and so took not upon him the judiciary power with which they could accuse him to the Roman governor, yet he manifestly appeared to agree with Moses that such a one deserved to be stoned. Wherefore, they could not charge him with being contrary to Moses and by putting him that was without sin to cast the first stone at her, he showed himself merciful to the woman." <laughs> Remember in John chapter 1 and verse 17, it says that the law was given by Moses, but grace and truth came by Jesus Christ. And here, Jesus shows himself both truthful and gracious. He tells the truth. Yes, she is guilty and she deserves the punishment, but then he also shows himself merciful to her by saying, by, by the by the. You know, the mind-blowing answer of, okay, yeah, she's guilty. Any of you that haven't sinned, you pick up the first stone. See, Jesus was the only one in the temple that day that could have stoned her because <laughs> he was the only one without sin. And so here Jesus is telling the truth. She's guilty, but he also shows his forgiving grace and his mercy in his answer. And, and after he says that, he again, it says he stoops down. He stooped down and wrote on the ground, just like in verse 6. He goes back to ignoring these people who are bringing this woman unto Him. And, um, you know, I've read in the past a lot of thoughts on what was it that Jesus wrote in the ground. If I'm not mistaken, this is the only time we have recorded for us that Jesus wrote anything. 
Think about the humility of our Lord that the only time we find him writing something, he's writing in dirt. It's going to be trampled on. The wind's going to blow it. We're never going to know what he wrote. You know, we go to great lengths to preserve great writings, right? We have none from our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Now, we have the Bible, which is inspired by Jesus Christ, but we don't have his personal writings. And, and I think that just is, is again, mind-blowing to me that the humility of our Savior, it would forever be lost shortly after this. Uh, but uh, years ago, I heard Jay Vernon McGee, who was, you know, he had his Bible bus and he he had his radio program through the Bible uh, for many years. Some of you may be familiar with him. And I kind of like to agree with what uh, Brother J. Vernon McGee said. Uh, he, he, he believed that Christ began to write things that linked the names of the Pharisees and the scribes to the sins of their past. <laughs> and he said, perhaps. And, and so, and, and there you go. There's a hallmark of these religious elite of this Pharisaical attitude is that that they forget they have a past too, right? And so uh, I believe it's in his, in, his, um, uh, in one of his uh, radio programs. He said maybe uh, Jesus was writing the name of a former lover of an old Pharisee. <laughs> or maybe it was the name of a harlot in Ephesus. <laughs> or a teenage mom who was left alone by a man who was studying in the religious schools. And as they began to hear him and they began to see what Jesus was writing, whatever it was, we read the ninth verse, it says, and when they heard it, being convicted by their own conscience, they went out one by one, beginning at the oldest, even unto the last, and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. And now they're gone. And if you can't tell, there's one thing that I despise and I think Christ despises it and I despise to see it in myself and I despise to see it in others is when we're looking down on people. People that God loves. People that make mistakes. And we, and, and we don't show them grace and mercy. I want to be like my Savior, don't y'all? I don't want to see that in me. I don't like to see it in others. And they're gone and now it's just Jesus and the woman. Her accusers are gone. And here's the main point of the story. We can see ourselves in the Pharisees and the scribes. We see ourselves in the people that believe. We can see ourselves in the officers who couldn't, who knew that there was something different about Jesus. We can see ourselves in all those. But if there's anybody that, we, that represents us in this story, it's the adulterous woman. We are the ones who are guilty. We are the ones who are being prosecuted. We are the ones who are being presented before the judge and we are caught red-handed. We have an accuser of the brethren as the Bible calls Satan. And, and he's accusing us. And the scary thing is, he's right. <laughs> We're guilty. We, we deserve, what we deserve is to be condemned. And to be condemned is to, be, is, to, is to bring a sentence upon somebody. And not only a sentence, but uh, to be sentenced to something, a punishment, which would be death. What we deserve is, e is eternal death or separation from God. We deserve condemnation. We deserve death. That is the sentence that our 
sins bring upon us, but the gospel of grace is this, that God dealt with our accusers <laughs> and that God stands between us and the wrath we deserve. And so Jesus has dealt with the accusers. They are gone. And now it's just the woman and God Himself. And Jesus, now that they're gone, Jesus lifts Himself up. It says He lifted up Himself and saw none but the woman. And He said unto her, Woman, where are those thine accusers? Hath no man condemned thee? And she said, No man, Lord. And Jesus said unto her, Neither do I condemn thee. And, and Jesus is not brushing off sin. The woman that stands in front of Jesus is guilty. The woman that stands in, Je in front of Jesus is sinful. She is dirty. She is guilty. But she is loved by God. And, and, and just as Jesus had saved her from the temporal death that could have come... If the Pharisees would have gotten their way, they wouldn't have cared if she died. They would have stoned her. But Jesus stood in the way of her temporal death the same way Jesus is going to go to the Christ. He's going to go to the cross and stand between her and the wrath of God. To save her from eternal death. Because, because the only thing that saved you from the wrath of God is Jesus standing in your place. John would write years later in his first epistle, John, First uh, John chapter two and verse one. He says, "My little children, I write these things unto you that you sin not, that you don't." That's the goal, right? He's going to tell her, "Go and sin no more." And John says, "I'm writing these epistles, these letters unto you that you go and 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 don't sin." But he says, "If." Any man sin. And who can raise their hand? I fall into that category. He says, if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Now we have the, the Pharisees and the religious elite that may thumb their nose at us and say they're guilty. We have the accuser of the brethren who in our minds, and if he could get in the courtroom of heaven, be saying they're guilty, they're guilty, they're guilty. But we have a defense attorney. That's what that means. An advocate in heaven who's pleading our cause and he goes on, John would go on to say, Jesus Christ the righteous. Can you think of anyone else that is better to plead your cause before the courtroom of heaven than Jesus Christ the righteous? I can't think of a better one, can you? <laughs> I don't want you pleading, I don't want another sinner pleading my cause. <laughs> but Jesus couldn't just stand in front of God and say, Jesus couldn't have said to this lady, no man condemns you. If, if he just said, I'm righteous and I think they're, I think they're okay, we're going to let them go. Jesus couldn't look at Brother Mark or look at me and, and, and go to God the Father and say, God, don't, don't, don't execute Your wrath upon them because I like them. I love them. They don't deserve it. Because He loves you, that would be true. He, he, maybe He likes you, that would be true. But to say they don't deserve it, that wouldn't be true, right? So just because Jesus is righteous, I like that, that, he's, that the righteous one is pleading my claws before the throne. But John goes on to say, for we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. And he says, 
here's, here's, the only, here's the only thing you have to plead before the throne of God. He says, and he, Jesus Christ the righteous, is the propitiation, the wrath-ending sacrifice for our sins. Y'all see that? That he is the one that went to the cross. That he is the one that shed his blood. That he is the one that redeemed his people. So the one that's pleading your cause before the Father, even today, saying he's not saying, look at them, they're okay, because that wouldn't be true. He's saying, look at the hands, they're scarred. He's saying, look at me, I died for him. And John says, and not only for ours, but for the sins of the whole world. And in that he means all of God's elect, not just the Pharisees and the ones that think they get it right, but the ones who get it wrong. This is for the free, for the slave. You know what he's saying? Christ is the propitiation for the sins of that gray-headed Sunday school teacher and that adulterous woman who was caught in that act. And he looks at this woman and he says, neither do I condemn thee. Go read Romans chapter 8 tonight or this afternoon and see who can bring a charge against God's elect. Nobody, because it's Christ or God that justified them and it is Christ who is interceding for them. And so finally, he says to the lady, as we close, he says, go and sin no more. And in this, she gets a fresh start through the grace of God. Isn't that amazing? Jesus gives this lady a fresh start. And you know what holds so many people back from really pressing into the kingdom is, is, is they feel condemned. There's no way Christ could use me if because I know what I've done. I know what I've said. I know how I've acted. I know the way I live. Christ knew everything about you when you went to the cross. Christ knew everything about this lady when they drug her to humiliate her in front of the crowds. Yet he looks at her and he says, I don't condemn you. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And so the message of grace is you don't live your life in a perpetual state of fear about what you have done. Move on. He says, go to be weighed down with the sins of your past, whether they were this morning, she was just caught in the act, <laughs> or whether they were years ago. The message of the gospel is don't let that weigh you down. Go and sin no more. He says, turn over a new life. I love the word henceforth. It's used in, in the book of Ephesians for sure. It's probably, I know it's used in other books as well. But he says, from henceforth, from this time forward. That's the only thing that's that's the only thing you can change, isn't it? From this time forward. 
I can try to go back and make amends to somebody I've hurt, but I can't change what I did. But I can decide how I'm going to treat them today, right? I may not have, I may not have been successful in all the plans I had in 2023. I may not have attended the church like I thought I should, prayed like I should, read like I should, acted like I should. But you know, I think if Jesus was here today and he and, and he knew and he knows and, and laid before him was everything that you've done this year, every way you've messed up, you know what I think he'd say to you? Go, sin no more. It's a fresh start. You only get that through the grace of God, right? Only through the grace. I'm so thankful for his grace. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day. Thank you that you look at us and you love us and you're merciful to us and you correct us when we need to be corrected. Thank you that you sent your son to stand in, in the way between your wrath and our guilt that you placed on him our sins and that today you see us as righteous. It's, it's, it's the greatest message ever. May we not get tired of that message. May we not grow weary in hearing it and talking of it and sharing it and spreading it. And Lord, may you open up doors for us that we may be able to in 2024, preach the message of God's grace, big grace, successful grace, saving grace, the message of grace alone. May it go forward that others would come in amongst us and feel the freedom that we have, not in what we've done, but in what you've done, Lord. God, I pray you'll bless Brother Ricky with a safe trip here this evening. I pray you'll give him traveling grace, preaching grace. You'll give us uh, this uh, abundance of your spirit tonight that, that as we start a new year, we would go forward and sin no more, that we would go forward and start anew, start afresh, knowing that we, when you look at us today, you do not look at us through the lens of condemnation, but through grace that we're free. Help us to understand that. Help me to understand that. That you don't look at me as the one who didn't get it all done or didn't get it all together or the one who's failing you, but you look at me like you look at your only beloved son in whom you are well pleased. Help me to understand that. Help us all to understand that. Help us to, help us to look at others like that. Not as beneath us, but as people who you have rescued as well. God, help us not to be Pharisees. Help us to be humble like your dear son. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We'll, uh, we'll sing a hymn at this time, give an opportunity if anyone would like to unite with this church. Uh, you can come forward. you have a song, Brother Joshua? What was that? Did you say 19? Number 19.